Hello, I'm Mary Portis, and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow, people, planet, and profit. In that order, it's the future. Are you ready for better? We've come a long way in our understanding of the human brain. And one of those areas this has most influenced is how we raise our children. Even just 20 years ago, sorry Milo, I remember doing this, we were told as parents to leave our children crying in order to learn to settle by themselves. And we now understand, however, that touch is critical to children's ability to thrive. Orphanages have higher infant mortality rates. The children living in them have been found to experience neurological changes that only start to slow down or reverse when they experience loving connection. Without a touch, a baby will literally fail to thrive. As sophisticated as we human beings are, we're also at root animals that as well as food, water and shelter need vital, physical and emotional connection. On a collective level too, we experience this kind of critical impulse to connect. And sadly, it's been so frustrated for so many of us during the pandemic. If only now, well, we are only now, beginning to negotiate life more freely. And for many, this is fraught with anxiety. We've experienced a collective trauma and we need to heal. The Office for National Statistics reports that 16 to 24 year olds are more lonely than pensioners. It makes me really sad. And the problem is such that the government has appointed a minister for loneliness. But it's not just about individual connection. This is on a wider community level too. We can experience it, all of us. The late psychiatrist and broadcaster, Dr. Anthony Clare, had seven rules for happiness. And the second one was this, be a leaf on a tree. Isn't that beautiful? Be a leaf on a tree. And the explanation, well, by the broadcaster, Giles Brandreth, who turned Claire's rules for happiness into a book, was so beautifully summed up. To thrive, you have to be both an individual with a sense that you are unique and that you matter. And at the same time, you need to be connected to a bigger organism, a family, a community, a company, a club. You need to be part of something bigger than yourself. What can we, as businesses, contribute to this? Well, we know that during COVID, people turned to local businesses more and more, and amen to the moments when we could all bump into a neighbour on the way to the shop or have a quick chat with a newsagent once you were there. Online too, people searched for and found new communities to engage with from an online yoga group to re-establishing connections with extended family that they perhaps haven't seen in years, but now were able to. Yes, and do a lovely Zoom quiz. Businesses can continue to build on this in a myriad of ways. If you're office-based, it's about creating connection within your team. If you're business to business, it's about building powerful relationships with external partners. If you're online, creating community between the people who buy into your brand. Each small, seemingly trivial connection, whether it's online, face-to-face -face conversation at a meeting, or bumping into someone on the street, or the flash of recognition that comes from a brand we love, is a small spark. And now, here's the thing. It's the job of all you businesses to nurture those sparks and kindle them into tiny fires. And if you do that, 
those flames can be both a beacon, welcoming your community and also a hearth that enhances lives. I'm Mary Porters and this is The Kindness Economy. This economy is brought to you by Dell Technologies. And I know who I've got coming down the Zoom pipe. It's Paula. Hello, Paula. Hi, Mary. How are you doing? I'm very good. What's going on at Dell? Tell me all these fabulous things that you're doing. So let me tell you a little bit about financial services. As a small business, cash is king. And we understand that that's one of the main reasons why businesses sometimes struggle right and and Dell really put a lot of thought into creating the financial services solutions and this is to ensure that we offer small businesses flexible payment terms this means that you can spread out the cost of your tech so if you're buying pcs or if you need a server whatever it is that you you do you can buy and you can spread that out in 48 installments not only that depending on the plan that you choose you actually get a massive saving of about 15 percent to the total cost okay so you can one save a lot of money by spreading the cost out and you can ensure that whatever cash you've got is used to growing your business and is not impacting your productivity so go out there do what you have ensure that you have your technology behind you to keep growing your business that's wonderful as we know cash flow is the biggest issue when it comes to small businesses but knowing that they can still work have that technology which is vital to find out more go to dell.co.uk forward slash small biz Later on, I'm going to be talking to John Schoolcroft from Oatly. But first up, before I do that, Emily's with me, of course, and she's going to tell us something. Oh, she's choking on her coffee. Tell us something great. I'm drinking Oatly. I'm drinking Oatly. Yes, I know, I'm drinking Oatly. I'm hoping he's going to come in with a big lorry full of barista. Exactly, it's the, the barista, barista one. one. If you got that, John, we're waiting. That's later. <laughs> but first, here's our Emily, and she's going to tell us something great about what's been happening in the kindness economy this week. Take it away, Em. Okay. Now, neither of us should know about this because neither of us are looking for a, a new job, I don't think. But <laughs> <laughs> there's an app, a recruitment app called Genie. I've been on um, it, yeah, yeah. Have you been on no, it? No, sure. She has. She's <laughs> getting a new job. Um, Anyway, so they are, you know how, it's such a simple tweak, but basically when you're looking for a job, it's very transactional. And they've decided to actually turn it into what they're calling a transformational experience. But essentially they'll give users for free masterclasses in how to sort of up your game and just become a better candidate, learn a bit more. So it's not just this sort of really soulless you know, it's almost like a rubbish game of Tinder where you're just flicking through the jobs. They're actually using it as an experience while they've got you there to actually help you grow. And not I think just, that's a brilliant great, idea. Right? And I think of the amount of time where we, you know, speak to young people in our business or even my own kids where you're guiding them, they don't know, what do I do at that interview? Or, yeah. you know, do I look like I've got enough experience? Or, you know, so they're guiding them so that by the time that they get those jobs exactly. or looking... They'll yeah. help upskill you. So if you, you know, if there's a certain type of role that you want and you're not quite there yet, they will help you understand what you need to do to get there. Nice, I like that. Nice, right? I like that one, that's a tick. Nice that's one, Jeannie. So when I see your name on it, I'll uh, have a word. <laughs> see you on the app. <laughs>
John Schoolcraft's LinkedIn profile lists everything from dishwashing to shop assistant, DJ to Alice Cooper's security guard among his previous jobs. But there's one that he will forever be synonymous with, Global Chief Creative Officer at Oatly. Along with the CEO, Tony Peterson, John has transformed the unknown Swedish alt milk brand into a global superstar with sales of $420 million in 2020. But what makes this story so compelling is that Oatly wasn't a new product that John and Tony launched to great acclaim. Oatly had in fact been around for 20 years before these two came along. And while the product remained the same, what changed is that Oatly underwent a complete external transformation. Gone were the -the run-of-the-mill packaging that went before, and it was replaced with, and unusually so, with political statements on its packaging, including everybody is of equal worth, and that the reckless pursuit of profits without any consideration for the well-being of the planet and the humans that live here should be considered a crime. Think about it. This was the statements on the side of oat milk packaging. (laughs) Unique new. The brand voice went from what was typical marketing speak to informal, witty, controversial, completely unexpected. This tastes like shit, I think, is one memorable line. And Oatly has continued to confound expectations from sowing the seeds of its success in the US via baristas in coffee shops from the small, not the big supermarkets, rather than racking up ad campaign bills to what was an extremely brilliant Super Bowl ad earlier this year, featuring the CEO playing a pretty dodgy jingle on an 80s synthesizer in a field of oats. At the core of this challenger brand, however, there's three values, nutritional health, sustainability, and transparency. But how? The big question, how in a world so packed with products and messaging did John create the kind of global impact that Oatly has achieved? And now it's got so huge, how does Oatly protect itself from accusations of selling out? Big question, can big really be kind? But first, let's ask an ad man, essentially, who came from big brands, how he started in this company and how did it work? Wow, so... (laughs) I can be I can be really really honest with this. It was just to work with Tony. You know, Tony and I had known each other for I don't know twenty years at the time or twenty five years. I can't remember. Worked together off and on, and he approached me and he said, "I'm I'm the CEO of an I just got the CEO job at an oat milk company." And I thought that sounds disgusting. In fact, I said that sounds disgusting. Oat milk, goat milk. I don't even <laughs> understand what you're talking about. Um, good luck with that. I'm happy for you career wise, but I don't, I really don't want to be part of it. And he's like, come on, John, we can do something with this. And, um, I told him at the time, I don't know, you know, I don't think so. Maybe you should do this. I don't know what I can do with this. And he was very persistent and come on, can we do something? And so I just said, okay, so if you get rid of the marketing department entirely, uh, I'll do it. And he's like, sure. I mean, what could go wrong? Uh, removing the marketing department. And my thinking behind this was that, um, in my experience, marketing directors had ruined my best work. They hadn't understood it. Yeah. They hadn't understood the strategy. They hadn't, they were afraid internally, scared shitless. And so um, 
I figured if you remove them, I have no one to blame but myself for success or failure. And what I wanted was a team of makers instead of a team of approvers. Marketing departments tend to be, you know, they look at their data and they want to test things and they're very insecure and they're worried about what the CEO is going to think and they don't have contact with the CEO. And so um, it's a very fear-led relationship often, not always. There are, are great clients, um, obviously. But, and so I just figured if you threw away that and you embedded, you know, creatives into the company that were collaborating and working from the start, that system would have to work. So I was thinking about the kindness economy, which I talk about. It's not just about product and production methods, because that's why I love talking to you, particularly on this. Um, would you say to people, so often people I know believe that they need to start with a brand. The ethics and the belief system of the kindness economy brand needs to be there and you create it from the beginning. Was it always there in Oatly? And did you just hi highlight it and put it out to the world? It was, it, was, it was this weird, strange, magnificent company. There were 30, you know, food engineers, scientists, or 40. I think there were 40, 40, 50. We had a factory also sitting in the Swedish countryside. And um, it was like a 35-year-old startup. So imagine it's like you had all the knowledge and we had a factory. Looking back... I would never want to, like, how are we going to build our first factory? How are we going to make the product? That's a completely different, um, you know, a completely different uh, journey, actually. But what we had was, it was like, there was this incredible product that nobody knew about. It was marketed toward people who were allergic or, or vegans. And if you even go back 10 years, the, the concept of veganism was was a bit strange and a bit odd and outside mm. society. And today, you know, eating plant-based has become mainstream. But they were exceptionally dedicated to the company and exceptionally skilled. They just had no idea how to tell the world about their product. And so, um, well, you could tell by the, the packaging. I think the packaging said, you know, the same thing three times on the face of it. Like they didn't, it wasn't, you know, strong enough the first time. Um, and so we, we were just... We would just, I, I remember Tony and I started um, looking at the rebrand by saying, if we get rid of oats, <laughs> maybe we can make this successful. Like, start with the <laughs> word drink. You know, like, throw everything out. And, it, and I think that that's such an important departure point that we actually started of breaking down everything. And in that process, we realized, no, wow, this is really magical what they've done. And then took on, you know, the whole entrepreneurial spirit of what was started of, you know, um, developed by, you know, the scientists that, that found lactose intolerance and looking for a way to make a better milk, one that was more in tune with the human body and with the planet. And so finding going back to actually the beginning and using that and just refinding, you know, rekindling kind of that entrepreneurial spirit that was there in the beginning of the 90s. And then building everything on that, I, I think, you know, that was the key. But we had that process that we had to go through to actually break it down to that level to say, like, this is this is amazing. It just needs to be expressed to, you know, normal, average people. 
So you did that, I mean, brilliantly. I mean, for anybody who's not picked up uh, an Oatly package, God knows where you are, but nevertheless, um, you can get a picture. It's a kind of play school meets Earth Mother. It's wonderful, it's bright, it's colours, slightly handwritten, you know, a font, a bit earnest. You changed everything and you didn't follow any of the accepted rules. So you moved even the pouring spout to the middle of the carton, for instance, to encourage people to pick it up because it looked different. Then there was the introduction of your distinctive colorway and the fonts also the packaging text this is what I love <laughs> I mean I I, 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 I I've talk often on brands this to people it felt that you were talking directly you know and you talked even on the text the nutritional information said the boring stuff and it contained a statement of Oatley's beliefs which were and are unusually political I mean including everybody's of equal worth and the reckless pursuit of profits without any consideration for the well-being of the planet and humans that live here should be considered a crime. This is a big statement. Was it something you yes. truly believed, or was this absolutely. an ad line? I, I, I absolutely love that of all the copy on the side of the packaging, you pull up that line yeah. because it was, again, it was... You know, if if it was me approving my own work and the only one who could stop it was Tony, I felt that why shouldn't I just treat it like a human? Like it's a human speaking to other humans. And those were very personal beliefs, mm. which I thought a good company should have. And so that is a very political statement. And it was just to get people to think a little bit about the reckless pursuit of profits, which is happens to be you know a lot about you know business and capitalism and and success <laughs> you know for success for people is growth and then growth is money and earnings and equity and all these you know wonderful financial words but for us it was i mean our our whole idea from the very beginning was never really money focused the board had given us can you you know make the company bigger and more successful yes but we thought look we we have a set of skills that we should use in the best way possible to create, you know, positive societal change. Tony and I spoke about that quite quite early in the process, like in the very beginning. Like we we were doing this to see if we could contribute to society. Truly, um, truly, truly. I'm going to ask you truly. Did you sit down there when you were sitting with that small business and Tony as a CEO, you coming from those big brands and go, okay, let's do this to contribute to society. And if the profit comes, brilliant. Yes. Well, Absolutely. good, good on you. Paint the sea for me. No, the, I can't. I know that Tony had, I know that Tony at the same time had a lot of, you know, the board was wanting sales. I, I think they said at the time, can you guys do 700 million sec? And Tony said, John, can we do 700 million sec, which is, I don't know, 70 million pounds or something like that in three or four years. And I just said, I have no idea how much money that is. So just say yes. I mean, the 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 thing was is that I think we were so successful in the beginning because we were never focused on the money part of it. I I really never had money discussions with Tony. Um, have had very few money discussions with Tony. Again, that's his CEO role to have with the board and to have with the finance team, etc. But it was like never really our discussion. Our discussion was how do we do this right? How do we contribute? Um, you know, just there's an 
70 to 80%, depending on where you are, carbon savings every time you drink a liter of oat milk compared to, to cow's milk. So just that inherently built into the product was some goodness. And then the, the nutritional the nutritionals were more in line with what the human body needs instead of what a baby cow needs. So there were pieces that were put in. So just growth, just becoming more mainstream. And we, we can talk about that too, because there's a coolness hip factor when you're when you're young, but that was never, you know, to reach mainstream more hip and, and cool. As you know, I think, you, well, of course, there are brands that do that. And, and, um, uh, and it's a very difficult thing to bridge. But take me back a bit here, because I find I find this really interesting. I read somewhere that, you know, the day that you unveiled the look to the company, who'd been used to doing things a certain way, somebody asked you why you were ruining the company didn't they I mean how did you because we we talk about within the kindness economy and and rebuilding business it's not just the people that buy into your brand but the people within your business how did you change that internal culture as well so there's a lot of credit to Tony on this because Tony was hired in the autumn late autumn of 2012 and there wasn't any new rebrand that came out until like the spring of 2014 and so for a, you know over a year Tony spoke to everyone every day he he knew every wife or husband and their children's names you know he 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 created this very collaborative um personal relationship uh, with with everyone and it was very transparent also at the time as transparent as you can be you know it's like some certain things you're not sharing like every situation but it was a very kind of transparent and uh, if I if I go were to go back into the the process, we we um, we looked at the design process. We went around to some design agencies, and we said, "Just give us like we wanted to make it feel like Tony's down in the basement with some potato print stamp making these packages." And Tony had worked with another guy, Martin Ringquist, who was at the agency Forschmann and Bodenforsch. And we spoke to them also. There's not not a traditional design agency, and his art director Lars Elfman did his own design um, and we were using their design agency at the same and it was exactly like you see the packaging now handwritten full of this kind of punky type feel to it and when I saw the, the design it was just like I've never seen anything like this this is not for anybody therefore it is interesting um, obviously we stopped working with the design agency and, and started working directly and um then the process was you know also like writing on the side of the the packaging was i think it took me about a month of just trying to find the voice and then i think i wrote 30 packages in two hours you know once you find it the voice was there and we then did all the packaging and tony said called the whole company at that time 40 people to the boardroom and said this is our new packaging and one of the guys in the factory looked at it and he said exactly what you said you're ruining this company this is so childish and he saw something pornographic or something in in the logo and he's like who would ever do that and so tony said well i understand that you maybe don't like this but this is what we're going to run and um i just want you to know and the funny thing was that same guy when he saw the packaging come off the line in the factory he came up to me afterwards and he said, I was so wrong. <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and it just goes to show not everyone can see how that packaging on a, on a keynote 
up on a projector screen is going to, you know, turn into a, a product in hand in the supermarket for people. So there you are. You've grown this incredible, huge uh, brand. And it is, it's slightly radical. It came in, it was a disruptor, you know, it came in and spoke in a completely new voice in a market. And I, I know exactly where you could minimize and say, this is our audience. This is how we're going to talk to it. And you went with a freedom. There was a great freedom about it. And it's, it's been an extraordinary success, but maintaining trust must be your biggest challenge now because you've grown so much. And, and we know when you grow like this, I spoke to many business owners, CEOs, directors of companies that have grown so much, and everybody then starts looking to see where can I catch you out. I'm going to catch you out, and I'm going to write the minute you trip up or do something, or maybe not even trip up, but I'm going to find something or someone's going to talk about you. Now, a couple of things have come out with you guys. You've been criticised for being slow to respond to Black Lives Matter. You sued a little British oat milk company brand last year. And then you sold a stake in the business to investors, including controversial private equity firm Blackstone. Twitter went into overdrive. Um, and the court of public opinion is more and more vocal these days. You've said before that you don't like the capitalist system. So talk, talk to me about why you went for that private equity money. <laughs> for exactly that reason. I mean, if you look at the private equity money, they're... they're uh, again, I, I like to just comment a little bit about your original statement it's exactly what happens you know you're a small company and you become successful like the only thing you do wrong is you become successful um and you grow and when you grow other people who don't know really how to grow say well let's get a piece of that like let's trip them up even bad press is good press but i don't think that we're we were expecting this i don't think you're ever ready for it um, the private equity money was, it was a, I mean, it can feel like, wow, why did you take money from, from them? But I think it was a long philosophical discussion that we had over a number of months was how can we create the most impactful change in society? And if you take money that's already directed toward, you know, the planet, um, okay, that's fine. That's good. But you're not changing anything. And our an, an entire thought was, if we can inspire other investors <laughs> to take their money from wherever they're investing now, pipelines or whatever, and move it over into something that actually contributes to the longevity of the, of the planet, that would be the best thing that we could do. And you can say, John, that's incredibly naive. <laughs> And I can say, yeah, but it's incredibly naive in 2012 to ever think that we were going to sell oat milk to China or the U.S. or all over Europe. And I think this kind of naive optimism is something that's very kind of our, our strength, actually. And so that, that, was, our, that was our thinking on, uh, on Blackstone. And, and um, you know, it's so easy. We're living in this society where people don't necessarily do all their research. They just kind of, you know cancel a company because they think it's wrong you know they do that or they do that but um you know a little bit deeper research will will and you can't expect that of people but um would would show a, would show you know a different perspective yeah it's a, it's a very interesting i've had again um i had uh, the, the chief exec of a supermarket chain over here who's gone in and fighting to change so many products and and he was trying to get rid of palm oil i think he had something like 
75 products and uh, he was slowly changing them and then you know the newspapers went in and found seven that had palm oil in it headlines the brand you know people standing outside (laughs) bashing it and then behind the scenes are all the other people who aren't doing anything quietly getting on and making money so you put your head above the parapet you you go out there with political statements of course you're going to get this. But basically of what course. you're saying is there's, you know, $4 trillion of investment capital in the world. Very small amount goes into green investment. Yes. So any money that can get it will take it from, whether you call it the dark side or whatever, and put it into doing something good. Isn't that what world health should be doing as well? In any way, should governments that aren't always being best put money into countries and, and help develop? It, it's the same kind of system that we're talking about. Banks, where are they putting their money? Exactly. And if you look at all that, a a lot of money is going to do a lot of evil stuff. It's very hard to walk into a supermarket and say, wow, everything's clean in here. Yeah. Um, The food industry, you know, when we started, it was like the food industry was very, very, I mean, think about it. The the nutritional side paneling in in the United States was made into a law that you had to, you know, let people know what was on the side of the package in 1994. Before then, you could put basically anything on it in, into a into your product. And there's so many things that are necessarily wrong. The the solution isn't just continuing to you know do what appears to be right. It's like you need to think through those things, and then you need to make the decisions that aren't always going to be super popular. Is there risk in that? Of course, there's risk in that. Of course, and I think but there's risk. Again, if you want to create, yeah, if you want to create change, you have to, you have to take those risks. It's interesting what you were saying about. Um, I'm thinking about even the organisations now and how the change. I, uh, you know, um, do you think we've gone from a consumerist society, whether that's food or, or, or whether that's fashion, where people created a product and they sold it to you? Advertising, the marketing was absolutely key to that. You talked about removing the marketing department and that layer that stops that that creative vibration and freedom that really has seems to what you've done changed the way brands market. What you're doing is a behavior of a brand and putting it out into the ether whether that's through what you say on your packaging to how you who you partner with, whether it is an ad and it's putting your CEO in a field. I mean, that was absolutely hysterical. We can talk about, about that. <laughs> Do you think that that's the future, that true brands that stand for something, this is less about marketing campaigns that tell you, but actually a behavior that you buy into the values and the resonance of that brand? And it's a very different way that we will be marketing brands in the future, even if the word marketing itself seems slightly dated. But I think that's exactly our approach. I mean, we our whole feeling was we're not a company, never speak like a company, never speak like a logo. People don't need brands. They need something more real. And so we, from the very beginning, wanted to be a group of people helping other people make a few changes in their lives that they could benefit from themselves personally and that the planet would also benefit from. And that's basically it. And and we never wanted, we, we realized that there's a lot of people out there. I mean, we get a lot of hate mail, you know, just like that was the dumbest ad I've ever seen. Um, and I love to read the hate mail because I know that if someone took the time to actually write to us about how dumb something was, they noticed it and they're thinking about it and maybe they'll try the product. And it all comes, you know, down to trying the product. And we know we have a great product and that's the whole key, just to get people to try it and make their own decision. And don't try to please everyone. 
people are into it and want to try it cool if if they're not go ahead and i don't know drink drink something else or or but i mean or, i think i think make we, another set of changes well you're saying that the product is absolutely essential but there is this resonance of the product's great someone else can come along and do a great product they can they can but there's the values that go with it that make you feel I am buying something that is making this planet better, making my life better, and works and has a belief system that resonates with me. And if you get both of those together, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, and I think we you saw you had a question in the in the beginning about you know this challenger brand and challenger perspective. And I, I, again, and it's also you know like you said, Twitter lit up on Blackstone or something. It's the same people that are in the management of this company that were in the management of 2012. But it's like, we're still driven by the same thing. You don't, you don't start one day and then say like, these are the values and, and we think the reckless pursuit of profits should be actually considered criminal. You know, just m- money, 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 transactional, transactional, give me as much as I can get. And then one day say like, no, 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 now we're just gonna, you know, take money from there or uh, get into a trademark battle with a small British company. It's it's not like that. It's just that the world is a lot more complex. And when you're bigger, you become a target, like you said. And my whole feeling is very, very simple is that we've always tried to prove our worth through our actions that we are a good company and not try to talk about it. And so if you look at everything we do, the fact that we go, we're, went to music festivals for three or four years and gave our products away, the fact that we send ice cream trucks around cities so people can taste our products, the fact that we work with farmers, um, you know, on regenerative farming in Iowa so we can help them find ways to, you know, work with uh, the soil in their land. This, like, everything is about proof of actually showing through our actions. And so I, I always think, like... Um, Okay, so in the long run, it's just to continue to show people what we're doing with the projects we're doing and the fact that we're introducing more and more people. Long live true, irrepressible creativity, John. And let me ask you finally, where would you like to see your industry in five or ten years? And, and I mean the two industries. I mean both the oat milk and the health food industry, or, but also the ad industry. Um... You know, it's it's inter- interesting with Oatly, and I, I don't know the whole food industry. It's hard for me to speak about the whole food industry, but specifically with Oatly, I just I see. You know, we came just came through this age of tech where there were all these companies like Apple who just led everything, and I really think that Oatly is one of those one in a generational companies that has the potential to really kind of help us direct ourselves into the solutions that will make sure that we can live on this planet. Like, that's where I see the food movement going, that we need to be able to manage our resources a lot better than we do now. And Oatly can, you know, lead this, um, lead this movement. That's, that's how I, I see. The ad industry, I'm afraid, has made so many critical mistakes that they just got down to selling, you know, words and visuals or everything in the digital world with a price tag on it. And I think if you go back to the time where the ad industry was actually creating a lot of good, they were solving business problems. And I, I think if you look at what do I do in a day or what is the creative department, the Oatly department of mind control do at Oatly? And I would say, sure, we make, you know, wonderful ads, but 
we're kind of embedded in every part of the company. And I think our real advantage, our real contribution is solving real business problems. You know, coming up with products that would be better or or looking at sustainability issues or putting the carbon labeling on our packaging. Um, those are ideas that, um, that's where I think, you know, creatives can really contribute. And so if the industry could find a way to get back to working with all those wonderful clients, um, and the clients could actually trust them enough <laughs> to let them, to invite them in and let them help solve the problems. That, that would be one of the most interesting times, you know, for our industry. So, John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me this morning. Thank you. Sometimes the right things have to happen at the right time. John and Tony have shown what can happen by properly leveraging a brand with good credentials. And to do that, you have to have these critical skills, a bit of courage, a lot of instinct, and that capacity for joy. You know, when we at Porter sometimes go into businesses to talk about what they're doing within the kindness economy, we often find that there's a lot of fear. Oh, what can we say? What can't we say? We also feel that they can get a little bit earnest and that the joy has got stripped out. And I know that most businesses trying to go into this new economy with brands that are modern, relevant and are doing good for people and planet are trying their best. Their motives are good. And they want to tell people about all the good things they're doing for the environment, their supply chains, their employment practices. But this can often come at the cost of everything else. And the everything else is the product that you're selling. Because the kindness economy is not this dry old earnest economy. The kindness economy is about putting the right values at the heart of what you do, but also please find joy, communicate it, have fun, sometimes fail and be allowed to fail and get back up again and try again. That's what great new innovative business is about. And you don't have to choose one over the other. You can put people and planet at the heart of what you do as well as make money. Bravery and the capacity to trust your creative instinct will be critical to this. But when those chime with joy, the results can be amazing. Just ask the folks at Oatly who are making a lot of dosh by doing that. Next week, we'll finish this series with the entrepreneur and chief exec of Impact X Capital Partners, Eric Collins. Thank you, as ever, for listening.